left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Our philosophy internally is if we can achieve at least a 1.8 equity multiple to, or an 80% return to the passive investor in 24 months or less, we're probably going to look to sell the deal with the goal of doing a 1031 exchange. As an investor, you know, investors have the option to participate or not in the exchange. They can cash out or they can roll their money. But the reason that's our philosophy is that's a really strong return, You know, hard to find that anywhere else. And we feel like if we're getting less than that in two years or less, then we're probably selling too early and we can squeeze more value. But if we can realize a strong return, we're just going to exit, exchange it, and go about it. That's kind of you know our honest philosophy of, of how we're executing the plans. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, Group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. Hi, I'm Dave Zook from The Real Asset Investor, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm really pleased today to have Zach Haptenstall with us. He's the CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity and Rise 48 Communities. He focuses exclusively on the Phoenix multifamily market, and they have 33 assets acquired, eight of which have gone full cycle, and it might be more by now. So, Zach, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, Jim. Really appreciate you having me on the show and look forward to uh, providing some value for the listeners here today. Yeah, we're excited to have you. I really want to dig in and talk about Phoenix. It's a really interesting market. But before we do that, the way we always start is to hear your journey, your financial journey, your real estate journey. Like, How did you get from where you started out of college to where you are now? Yeah, yeah. So quick background on me. So I was born and raised here in Phoenix, Arizona, you know, just grew up in like a lower middle class family, no real estate connections in the family, you know, no rich uncle or anything like that don't come from wealth, you know, probably like most of the listeners, you know, I was just taught, do well in school, you know, get a degree, get a good job, save for retirement, etc. And so I had a journalism degree, I wanted to be a, a sports reporter. And so I got a journalism degree. And I was actually a live news anchor sports reporter for Arizona PBS for a short time, hosted a show on, on Fox Sports Network. And it was cool at first. And then I quickly realized, you can't make any money in journalism. And it wasn't as fun as I thought, right? I'm a big sports fan. But then when it's your job, it's just not the same. And so I was like, I don't want to do this. And I've got, I've got all this school debt, you know, my parents, they weren't like, super poor, but they didn't have a ton of money. And so they couldn't help with college. So I had to take out school loans to go to school. And I was working, you know, full time nights and weekends while I was going to school to help pay for it. And so I have all this school debt. I'm like, I don't want to do this. I want to pay off my debt. I want to feel financially stable and at least be in a better position. And so I went into healthcare marketing of all things simply because that's what I thought I could make money. I was delivering medical equipment nights and weekends while I was going to school, right? So I was kind of in the, and it was just an odd job I got through this girlfriend at the time's dad. And so, you know, I kind of parlayed that through him into healthcare marketing, working for a hospice organization. So I was a marketer. I mean, I'd wake up in the morning and just, and it sounds kind of weird, but I just drive around cold call, walking into hospitals, doctors, offices, assisted livings, and build relationships with like physicians, social workers, nurses. And when they had somebody who needed these hospice services or mobile nursing to their home, they call me 
you know, I meet with the family, get them signed up. So anyways, long story short, you know, I was doing that, was a marketer, became director of marketing and, and was very fortunate to do very well. You know, probably one of the top marketers in this industry. And, you know, by the time I was 23, I'm making like 150K a year. I bought my first house at 23. I paid off all my student debt. I was following the Dave Ramsey plan, right? And just kind of saving everything, killing my debt. And so I did that for about four years, you know, got my MBA, paid off my MBA. So by the time I was like 26, you know, I was making 200K plus a year, had my own house, no student debt, and felt like I was, you know, somewhat financially stable and fortunate to be in that position. You know, I was making more money than both my parents combined by the time I was like 22, 23. But I wasn't happy, you know what I mean? Because in any sales and marketing position, it's always, what have you done for me lately, right? And so it's like every month you reset. And I was just working crazy hours on call seven days a week, and I was no longer happy. And I felt like, you know, I'm not fulfilled. And so so basically in January 2018, I resigned and I had some equity in that company I had earned, like sweat equity. So I resigned and sold my equity in that company and lived off of savings for well over a year. And I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, Jim, at that point. I just knew that I was so unhappy with my W-2 job and, and I didn't have any kids and I wasn't married. I had a girlfriend who's now my wife, Grace, but I was like, I got to figure out something. I, I want to get control back of my time somehow. I knew nothing about real estate. I had gotten my real estate license about two years prior to that. Just, just as a backup plan. I never even used it. You know what I mean? So I didn't know anything about investing. And kind of like a cliche story goes, like, you know, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? And that kind of gave me some insight. So anyways, I was like, okay, I'm going to quit this job and just figure out how to create passive income somehow through real estate, just so I can gain control of my time. And so at first I was looking at, you know, should I flip homes? And then I started realizing that's the same thing I was doing. It's transactional. If I don't flip a home, I don't make money. And then I started learning about investing and I learned about mobile home parks and cash flow, right? So I actually, my goal was to try to buy a mobile home park with my own cash. I had about almost 300K of cash, which I had relentlessly saved for four years, making a high income and cutting my costs. And then I got a pop from that sale of the equity. So I had about almost 300K of cash. And I cold called around 90 mobile home park owners here in the Phoenix area trying to buy one on a seller carry. I maybe had a handful who answered or called me back. You know, nobody was interested. And but during this process, I was just learning, you know, trying to absorb as much info as I could, listening to podcasts, you know, kind of like yours, reading books, et cetera, going online and trying to self-educate myself. And I realized, what if I did buy this mobile home park? Then what? I have no more cash. I might get like three grand a month in cash flow. And then what do I do? Well, through that process, I learned about multifamily and syndication you know, just through podcasts and, and books, et cetera. And then it kind of clicked for me. I was like, you know what? That could work for me because what I was doing before is I was meeting with physicians, healthcare business owners who have a lot of disposable income, but they don't know what they want to do with it and they have no time. You know, that could kind of be the value that I bring. And so that's kind of when it clicked for me. So anyways, long story short, you know, it was probably at least four or five months before I even focused solely on multifamily syndication because I didn't know what I was doing. And so from the day I quit the job, it took 14 months to close on the first property. Okay. And, and so during that time, I burned through so much cash. You know, I went through a ton of like personal adversity, just like emotionally, mentally, psychologically, because like everybody around me, even my own family, my parents are like, what are you doing? You were making like 200K a year. And now, you know, I just wake up every morning. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It's just demoralizing. And it's hard to know how to move the needle, right? It's like, okay, what do I do today? Do I call a broker? Do I listen to other podcasts? Like, how do I move forward? So anyways, it was a long, you know, process, but that first deal and just stop me, Jim, if I'm kind of going too long and you want to dive more into stuff. So anyways, it took 10 months after I quit the job to finally get the first deal under contract. So I started going to conferences and I met one of my partners, Robert. Robert had like higher net worth, high liquidity, and he lived in Phoenix as well. I did not have net worth liquidity. I just had like 300K of cash. That's it. Okay. So I could not qualify to sign on these loans. I met Robert. I was like, this can be the net worth liquidity guy. And we got this deal under contract. It was 36 units, three and a half million. And by the way, we had probably underwritten like 40 deals or so up to this point in the previous months and nothing was even close. So I was getting more and more discouraged just thinking I'm too late to the game. It's too competitive. It's too saturated. But this deal, and you don't even know if you're doing it right, honestly, because you're like, am I doing this right? Is it actually pencil? But anyways, you know, we put in an offer and then it gets accepted. I'm like, oh crap, Like, what do we do now? Now it's real. That was a scary feeling when it got accepted, right? Before that, and that was scary just to even send an offer. But then when it gets like rejected, you almost get relieved because you're like, okay, well, you know, it's not gonna work out, but at least I tried. But this one got accepted. And so this was a 36 unit, three and a half million dollar deal, kind of an older beat up property in central Phoenix. And, you know, so we get it under contract, just Robert and I, 
And we had planned to syndicate the deal. We talked to all these people in the several months leading up to that. Like, yeah, I'm interested. Well, we get under contract. I'm 25K non-refundable earnest money. Robert's 25K non-refundable earnest money. 30 days go by, 40 days go by. Nobody's interested, right? And so we're like, what are we going to do? The syndication thing is not going to work. And so we had to bootstrap it and really scramble. So at the time, like I had burned through a ton of cash. I had joined mentorship programs. I had about 165K left. I put 160K into this deal, almost all my money, all in, because it was a, a $1.4 million of equity is what we needed. Okay. So I was trying to eat up a chunk of that, but I was also trying to like tell other people and attract them by saying, look how much money I'm putting in the deal. I believe in it. I'm all in. Robert put in 275. I was fortunate to find a 1031 exchange investor who had sold a 12 plex in Seattle, brought in about 650. And I had never heard of a tenant in common or a tick structure. I had no idea what it was. I learned what it was through that process. So we did a tenant in common tick structure. I met my other partner, my now partner, Bikron Sandu, our CFO. I met him while we were in escrow and I talked him into putting in 150K. And then I found a couple other people to put in like around 150K and we just like bootstrapped it, put it together. And it was a long four month, you know, stressful escrow. We had kind of a shady seller and, but long story short, we got that thing closed, right? So that was our first deal. We closed that in, in February of 19. Obviously a lot has happened since then, but you know, we've been very fortunate to kind of use that momentum, you know, just a handful of us put our own cash and we had no passive investors. So that allowed us to really, you know, get nitty gritty into the details of asset management and day-to-day execution of a value add plan that gave us experience momentum to then go forward and start syndicating these deals, raising money from passive investors. So since then we've acquired 34 different properties all here in the Phoenix Metro, worth over a billion dollars, over 5,500 units. I mean, we've had you know around 2,000 investors. So it's kind of crazy how in the beginning, it took me 14 months to get the first deal closed. And it was very discouraging, very difficult. But then we started to see you know, like exponential growth as we continued to just carry the momentum forward. That's amazing. I mean, it's a great story. I have a bunch of questions because you started from you know not knowing anything. And three or four years later, you're a very large syndicator that has 30 plus assets. I mean, that's amazing. One, one of the questions, you know, we hear a lot of people that get started in real estate before they start, they're on the Dave Ramsey plan. You mentioned that, right? Where it's, have you had a mindset shift since then? Because Ramsey's all about get rid of the debt, you know, in my opinion, for people that have a lot of the bad debt, not a mortgage, but credit card, student loans, all that. And he might be good for getting you out of that. But then once you're out of debt, I feel like Dave Ramsey isn't very useful because it doesn't apply to people that are investors. So can you talk a little bit about the mindset shift that happened between Dave Ramsey and now? Because I don't think you could be in the same spot if you're still a Ramsey follower. Yeah, 100%. Jim. I could not agree with you more. And I don't want to say I'm like anti-Dave Ramsey, but I agree with 100%. I mean, I think that there's a time and place in your life where Dave Ramsey is relevant. And I think if you're in a lot of debt, like you said, bad debt, then I think that the disciplines involved can be good because for me, you know, at that time I had a ton of student debt, you know, like a hundred K almost of student debt and I was making a high income. So I just cut all my expenses and was just killing the principal of the debt at the time that was good. Okay. But once you get out of debt, you need to scrap the Dave Ramsey plan completely because you will never become wealthy. Okay. It's an outdated plan. I mean, especially now with inflation and everything, it's like, you're never going to get wealthy. And I even talked to one of my friends the other day, he's got like five kids. And I said, you need to stop the Dave Ramsey crap because it's not going to help you. You're just going to get buried in this society with Dave Ramsey's plan because you have to start investing in assets. And, you know, the rich dad, poor dad was a good starter for that. But as I sort of really dive into this stuff, because I literally had no clue. Okay. I, I had no idea about multifamily and it was very intimidating by the way, because these are large properties, large number. But once I started realizing the benefits of cash flow, natural appreciation, tax benefits, I literally had like this epiphany and I honestly felt like it was a secret. I was like, why does nobody know about this? Like, how come I was trying to tell everybody I knew, you know what I mean? I was like, this seems like a secret and it makes so much sense. And it's like, why aren't people doing this? And so I realized at that point, I was like, I'm not going to invest my money anywhere else. And a lot of people say diversify, et cetera. You know, I disagree. I think that if you have X amount of money, then I think it was Andrew Carnegie, you know, the steel maven in the 1900s who said, you know, put all your eggs in one basket and protect that basket and watch that basket grow. I agree 100% with that because I'm a perfect example and I practice what I preach because I had a chunk of cash and I said, okay, I've researched this for several months. I believe in it 100%. I think it's conservative. You know, even if it takes me five, six years to make, you know, two X return, I believe that will happen. 
Like my dad, for example, he's a director at Edward Jones. He manages a bunch of financial advisors. I used to have a brokerage account with Charles Schwab. I shut that down a few years ago. And I told him, this is crap, dad. Like you can't do this. And I'm putting his money now into these deals because if you believe in one thing, then really pound that. And so my mind shift has completely switched to where, you know, I believe in investing in these assets and good debt is a good thing, right? Leverage is a good thing. I have 100% of my net worth in our portfolio and my own primary residence, 100%. I don't have any other passive investments with other operators, not that there aren't good operators, it's just I believe what we do. And I have no money in the stock market. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, it's good to diversify. But for me, I just believe in it so much that it's a complete mind shift like you mentioned, Jim. Yeah, well, I think that probably gives confidence to your investors as well because one of my big questions for you is, and it's a hard one, I think, is you know, you've had phenomenal success over the last three or four years. And so you've built a track record, right, of acquiring assets and you've also gone full cycle, which there are plenty of syndicators who are probably have been around just as long as you that have not gone full cycle and certainly not on eight plus deals, right? So there's a a solid track record there. But on the other side, you're brand new, right? You're a young guy, you're new to multifamily. Now you're a major player in a market and you're acquiring these big assets. So, you know, for me, how do you convince someone like me, which you already did because I already invested with you, but how do you convince people or educate them on, look, yeah, I'm new, but we got this wired. We know what we're doing. It seems like because everyone wants a quality sponsor with a track record, preferably prior to 2008. You have a track record, but it's a very short one. So how do you communicate that to investors? No, it's a great question, Jim. And you know, obviously, a strong market will make anybody look smart, right? And we're huge benefactors of that. And we don't deny it. We've been in a strong market, which helps everybody. There's a few different things that we feel like you know, kind of separates us and why we've felt comfortable scaling as quickly as we have. And so the first thing, you know, is our ownership team. And so through that process, Jim, you know, I probably quote unquote dated like seven or eight different business partners, meaning you meet people at a conference or at a meetup or whatever. And you say, hey, you want to do multifamily? Me too. Let's start underwriting deals together. Let's make offers together. And through that process, you start to realize, okay, this guy doesn't work as hard as me. You know, he's not actually committed. You know, this person, I can't get a hold of them. This person owns 2000 units, but they're just taking advantage of me because I'm in a good market and they want me to do all the work. And then I had one guy, we were on a nightly phone call for two months and we got along great together really strong work ethic, but we had the exact same skill set. And I needed like a truly high level analytics finance person. Okay. Like I, I have my MBA, I've taken the high level accounting classes, but I hate doing that. And I'm nowhere near the level of Bikron, you know, our CFO. So Bikron's our CFO. He has an economics degree, CPA, worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers for a number of years as a corporate auditor, auditing Fortune 100 companies. So very elite financial analysis skills and very elite at putting in systems and processes. And part of that journey that I didn't really go into, Jim, is I basically quit the job. We bought like four or five deals. I owned like 35 million of assets, you know, on paper. But I was broke again because I put all my money in the deals and the preferred return eats up all the, all the cash flow. So in September of 2019, I had to go back into healthcare because I was broke. I had a non-compete that ended with my previous company. I went and became the president and co-owner of a hospice company here in Phoenix. And in 18 months, we quickly scaled that from about 50 employees to over 110 employees, became the fastest growing hospice in the market here. And meanwhile, I was doing the real estate all at night. So Bitcoin had a full-time job. I had a full-time job as the president and co-owner of this company. And literally from like six to either 11 or 12, every night we were on a Zoom call, Monday through Thursday, I shouldn't say every night. I'm going through asset management, acquisitions, et cetera. And through that process, I really learned a lot about scaling a business and putting in operations. And so because of our team, Bikron is our CFO, you know, Robert's our chief construction officer, master's degree in architecture, strong construction background, and myself overseeing, you know, acquisitions, source capital, et cetera. We've been able to build out infrastructure to where we're only focused in this one market. We're completely vertically integrated with our own property management company we started, Rise 48 Communities. We have 100 plus full-time employees. You know, we've purchased over 5,000 units. We can get to any of them within 30 to 40 minutes of each other. We've intentionally tried to scale our infrastructure here. And, you know, in our model, to kind of get back to your original question, Jim, you know, the reason why, you know, we feel comfortable is because we're conservatively projecting to typically double investors' money over five years, okay, with a very conservative stress test. In reality, we've been doing that in about a year and a half, you know, across these eight assets. We're selling three more right now between now and end of July, 2022. So sold 11 deals since we started. But, you know, we feel very confident because in our conservative five-year underwriting model, we're assuming that right after we buy the deal, 
there's immediately going to be some type of significant economic downturn or recession that hits where the organic rent growth in the market just plummets immediately and decreases significantly and stays there for five consecutive years. And that vacancy increases immediately and stays there for five consecutive years. And that even with that downturn, we can hold through the recession, execute the business plan and sell in year five to achieve the returns that we're projecting to investors. And so this is a very risk adjusted projection. And on the outside, it probably looks like, oh, rise 48. Those guys are just buying every deal in Phoenix. You know, they don't even underwrite deals. They're just throwing money at it. It's not the case. I mean, I don't have any data to support this, but I would not be surprised if we're outworking every other sponsor in this market. And it's because we're constantly grinding. Like Bikron and I are here from 8.30 to 9 a.m. to 9 or 10 p.m. every single night. And then I go home, I mean, except for Fridays, and then I go home and work on emails. And so it's a volume game for us. We've been able to really build relationships with these brokers. There's five or six real estate brokers in Phoenix who control about 90% of the multifamily inventory between like the 30 to $150 million space. Well, I've been fortunate to form relationships with all of them, have done multiple deals with all of them. The majority of our acquisitions now have been sourced completely off market you know, with no competition for anybody else directly through these broker relationships. So we're sourcing them at a good basis. And by the way, Jim, we probably lose at least 90 to 95% of the deals we make an offer on. Okay. So we, even if they're off market, doesn't mean it's a good deal, right? And so we're losing most of them, but we crank the volume. Literally every week, I'm touring deals with brokers. Bikron is underwriting deals every week. Our asset management team is shopping comps every week for deals so that we can finalize our pro forma and make the offer confidently. So we're cranking the volume. And then we have the very conservative underwriting model. And then we've been able to build up this infrastructure where we're executing our business plans faster and more efficiently than what we project in the model. Okay. And so all of these factors combined are why we've been exceeding these returns in less than half the projected time period. But we do feel confident that, you know, if there's a downturn or recession, which looks like we're going into an economic downturn now, right, that we will still perform and hit our our projected return. So, you know, I think it's a combination of, you know, our backgrounds as principles that from other industries that we're able to apply to this, and then just our hyper concentration. And, And I think if you look at a lot of sponsors across the country, you know, very, I shouldn't say very few, but it seems like less than most are even in their own market, live in their own market that they're doing deals. And then even fewer actually have staff in a full on company. You know, we've got, I mean, we just bought our own office building. I'm sitting in our office building right now. Our staff is required to come here every day. And like I said, we have, you know, a hundred plus full-time employees. We do have the construction management, property management house. We buy our materials wholesale. So I think there's different things that we've done that kind of give us a competitive advantage um, is why we've been able to perform. But I think in the coming years, to your point, Jim, the best operators are going to kind of rise to the top, right? Because the market can make anybody look smart across the country the last three to five years. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there. Talk about the vertically integrated. Why did you choose to do that rather than outsourcing construction and property management and everything else? Why did you decide to do it all in-house? Yeah, good question, Jim. So we initially started using third-party property management companies. And initially, we were using third-party property management, and we were allowing the property management company to also do construction management. And construction management means that, for those of the listeners who don't quite understand what that means, you know, that means that the management of the construction means that you're actually out there sourcing, bidding out, and managing the vendors and contractors on a daily basis. Well, we first took construction management in-house, you know, probably at least a year before we took property management in-house. Because what we started to realize is that all of these third-party property management companies will tell you they can do construction management. And from our experience, none of them can. They do a terrible job. They cannot stay on schedule or on budget. And from a property management perspective, a property management company, just so that the listeners know, is a very low profit margin business. If you want to make money, do not start a property manager company, okay? It's, it's a crappy business to be in, in, in my opinion. They make their real margin off of construction management because they're basically sourcing and managing contractors or subcontractors, and they're taking a margin on that. And so it was a disaster. Our very first deal, you know, we didn't have any passive investors, and this is kind of why we did it this way. I mean, we couldn't get passive investors. It worked out that it was our money, is that they were not staying on schedule or on budget. 
So we quickly tried to start taking this control of this. And I was literally at the property, you know, like chewing out vendors trying to organize this stuff. And so we initially started first hiring staff. And our first hire was our director of asset management. Our second hire was our construction manager. And so that we started sourcing, bidding out and managing all of our own vendors and construction crews. So all the roofers, plumbers, electricians, general contractors, you know, we're bidding these guys out and we're managing them daily on site with our staff. And so like right now, for example, John, our construction manager, he has three construction coordinators who report to him. All four of them are our full-time salaried staff on full benefits. And all four of them literally spend 40 plus hours a week each just walking different properties that are undergoing renovations, making sure they're staying on schedule and on budget. Okay. And so construction management is the key because, you know, I think a lot of this stuff gets lost with all the hype of multifamily. People have to remember it's a value add plan. You have to be adding value. And the most important thing for these business plans is to make sure you're renovating units on schedule and on budget. A lot of operators, like I said, and we benefit from this too, you know, can just buy a deal and sell it without really having to do anything, execute on that business plan because the market has seen this natural appreciation and you've seen this natural compression of, of cap rates. But this is going to become even more important going forward as interest rates are rising. I mean, we think the velocity of rent growth will have to start slowing the next couple of years just because you can't maintain that forever. So the ability to renovate these units on schedule, on budget and get a good product push the rents and have your construction management communicating with your on-site leasing and property management to get these tenants moved in on time and paying that rent is critical. So we first took property or construction management in-house and then we were using property management third party for about the first 2000 units. Okay. And it was going well. And, and by property management, just so that listeners know, that means the on-site manager, on-site leasing associate, on-site maintenance. So they're basically doing all the marketing, lease ups, you know, tenant issues or complaints, evictions, and then like routine maintenance. Okay. So not like a full renovation, but you know, I have a broken sink or whatever it may be. Um, and so we were using third-party management. What started happening, Jim, was that because of all the unemployment checks, and this is happening across the country in multiple industries, but there was a depleted labor pool. And, you know, we started seeing more and more turnover at our on-site staff level of the property management company. So in a span of five months, we had four different on-site managers turn over and leave somewhere else because they can make more money and better benefits working for a different company. We literally had other property management companies showing up on site of our properties and picking off the staff of our third-party management company, just giving them a better offer and they would just leave. It was crazy. And so we said, you know what? Unfortunately, it did not negatively impact the performance of the asset because we were using our asset management staff to micromanage the PM company and still make sure we're performing. But then it's then it's drawing bandwidth away from our asset management staff for what they should be doing. And so, you know, we started getting over 2,000 units and we're like, you know what? We can't have this. We have to have continuity and control of this. And so our whole philosophy of starting our own property management company was that we're going to offer the most competitive compensation in the market and the best healthcare benefits in the market so that we can not only recruit, but retain the best talent. Okay. And, and our whole thing is we don't need to make money on the property manager company. We just want to break even on it because it's a crappy low profit margin business. And if it helps the operations of the property, well, then that really helps. That makes the property perform well. Investors are getting good returns. They're happy. We can raise more money. We can keep growing. And that benefits our high profit margin business, which is, you know, rise 40 to equity or the real estate company. So we injected about 600K of our own cash up front, the three of us, just to float salaries. And we immediately hired like an executive leadership team, a full accounting staff, a controller. We hired our controller away from Graystar. You know, so we basically were giving the most competitive compensation in the market. And then as far as we know, in this local Phoenix market, we have the most competitive healthcare benefits. So for all of our employees across both companies, this is 100 plus employees, we cover 100% of all their healthcare benefits, dental vision, and then 50% of all their dependents. Okay. And so that's very enticing for a lot of staff when they know that their family and their kids are getting, you know, good coverage. And so that allowed us to get better people, retain them. And so we started taking that all in house. And so basically, you know, we transitioned all the properties in one week to our property management company, all future properties as well are being managed. And, you know, what it did from like an underwriting perspective to give people an idea is that it increased our line, our payroll line item at the property level compared to what we were doing before because we're offering better compensation, better benefits. But it actually has given us net savings on the operational expenses because we were getting a budget from the third-party PM before for like marketing, maintenance costs, admin, and turnover. And none of those lines were being hit 
as we started having more turnover and you know maintenance issues, whatever, because the staff wasn't doing a good job. So it's actually given us a net savings, even though the payroll item is more because we've saved more on the other line items and just given us more control and, and efficiency. So it's been a big part of, of what we've done and has allowed us to have you know more robust infrastructure so that we can continue to scale and, and have full control there. Yeah, that's really a neat arrangement. And, you know, I was talking to a another multifamily operator, and they also brought their property management in-house. And they also turn properties really quickly, right? Like you're completing business plans in a year and a half or two years. So the question I have, and I asked this of this, this other company as well, is if you own the property management, does that change your incentives? Or when you're looking to sell, right? You're going to have to immediately buy something because you have all these employees that are working on that property. Now you get rid of that property or a couple properties. Now you don't have as much capacity, but you have these employees. So I always wonder, is there something that might influence you to change your business plan because you need your employees to have some work to do? Does that make sense, the question? Yeah, 100%. No, it's a great question, Jim. Yeah, I think it's very relevant. So the answer is, I can honestly say for us is no, it has not changed our incentives because the way that we really view this internally is that the property management company was created to serve the operations of the property and the investment. And you know what's very common in the industry, because these deals are always selling and trading, whenever one owner you know, sells a deal and somebody else buys it, they very rarely keep that same third-party property management company. So third-party property management companies are always shifting, losing deals. The on-site staff is very often in the industry getting laid off, okay? And, and that's why there's a ton of turnover because if that management company doesn't have somewhere for them to go, then they just say, sorry, we sold the property. We don't have another property to put you on. You're laid off. It just is what it is. So, I mean, it's unfortunate. That's just the nature of the industry. And so, you know, for us, we're not going to not sell something just because we might lose that staff. I mean, if it's a good staff member, again, the benefit that we have is that we're not really focused on the profitability of the management company. We're truly not. We knew it was going to take about 12 to 15 months to even break even on it. And we've invested a lot of money into it. But for us, if there's good staff, then we're going to move them to another property. And honestly, it just creates competition. So if we have an asset currently under management and you have maybe a average or below average employee there, and we're selling a deal with an all-star leasing agent or manager, we're probably just going to lay off the person on this other one. And then once this other one sells, we're going to move them over there. You know what I mean? And, and we make, you know, it doesn't sound politically correct, but that's just what it is. I mean, it's capitalism and it's competition. And so it's like, if you're a high performer, we're going to keep you and we're going to incentivize you to do really well. And if you're not, well, then you might become expendable, you know? And so one thing that we've done is, you know, we've really tried to utilize the 1031 exchange. And so, you know, of these 11 deals we'll have sold by end of July, we'll have 1031 exchange seven of those. And the other four, we just weren't thinking of that at the time. But going forward, our goal is to try to exchange everything going forward. So, you know, I think it has worked out to where we typically do have a place to put the staff. But yeah, you're right. That is one unfortunate thing is that you may not have somewhere for this person to go. And, you know, as far as like the fees and incentives, we actually have shaved our fee down below what is industry standard. Okay, so in the industry here in Phoenix, it's very standard for the for any third party manager company or any manager company to take a monthly fee of 3% of the gross collections. Okay, so that's the management company's fee. Well, we charge 2.5%. Okay, and the reason is to make the deal pencil better to have more higher cash flow for investors. So everything that we're doing with this management company is to try to serve the investor and the operations because we know the more deals that we go full cycle and can show strong returns, we're going to attract more investors so we can raise more money to buy more deals and bigger deals. And that's where the real money is made. We as GPs, we make at least 80 to 90% of our total compensation upon our GP promo or the, the quote unquote sweat equity. Okay. And we don't earn that until we've actually executed the business plan and achieved a capital event like a sale or a refinance because we don't receive any cash flow from our GP ownership during the hold of the property because the preferred return eats up all the cash flow. So 100% of cash flow and 100% of equity in the deal goes to passive investors the entire hold period. Once we execute the plan and sell or refi, that's when we make our compensation as GPs. And so we're really looking at how do we get to that point? How do we execute the plan? And you know, you mentioned kind of our high velocity nature, Jim, the way we've done it. Our philosophy internally is if we can achieve at least a 1.8 equity multiple to or an 80% return to the passive investor in 24 months or less, we're probably going to look to sell the deal with the goal of doing a 1031 exchange. As an investor, you know, investors have the option to participate or not in the exchange. They can cash out 
or they can roll their money. But the reason that's our philosophy is that's a really strong return, you know, hard to find that anywhere else. And we feel like if we're getting less than that in two years or less, then we're probably selling too early and we can squeeze more value. But if we can realize a strong return, we're just going to exit, exchange it and go about it that way. So that, that's kind of, you know, our honest philosophy of, of how we're executing the plans. Okay. So now I'd like to talk about Phoenix, right? It has to be you know, in more than one way, the hottest market right. in the country, right? Is it too late? Did I miss it? If I haven't been in Phoenix, can I start now? I mean, how can the market continue to go up? They have seen 15, 20% rent increases year over year. How is that sustainable? It's probably not. But if it's not, what are you doing about it? How are you staying in Phoenix and just exclusively Phoenix when it feels like it can't keep going? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Jim. Yeah, so I'll give you and the listeners, you know, historical data context. I'll give you some current data, and then I'll kind of give you what we project, kind of give you an idea, and why we are bullish on Phoenix long-term, next 10, 20 years. We think it'll be one of the most insulated markets in the entire country long-term, meaning in a down market, we think it's one of the most insulated conservative markets, and then we think it's one of the top markets in a strong economy because you have this explosive growth, and I'll go kind of go into that and why. But you've got, you know, U.S. Census Bureau has said Phoenix is number one for population growth for five consecutive years. Pre-COVID, we were number one for population growth, okay? Ever since COVID, all the fundamentals have accelerated exponentially. Population growth, job growth, rent growth, et cetera. And so what the data is showing is that people are coming to Phoenix. This was already happening, number one in the country, pre-COVID. Since COVID, even more so coming from California, Washington State, New York, New Jersey, Chicago. They're coming from high tax, high cost of living environments to Phoenix Phoenix is top five for job growth the last five years. Number one by some rankings, you know, different different metrics. So they're coming to Phoenix, which is such strong job growth. They might be making the same, if not more money they were making before, but they're in a much lower cost of living environment, you know, which helps to increase rents. In addition to that, there is a massive shortage of housing in Phoenix that has been going on for several years and they simply cannot catch up. And ever since COVID, it's become even worse. So there's literally a supply and demand issue in favor of landlords and investors, okay? Because you have all these people coming here. There's very strong jobs. And these are diversified jobs, okay? You've got a ton of tech jobs. People are calling this now the Silicon Desert because you've got all these Silicon Valley companies relocating here. You've got Google, Facebook, Amazon, all these big companies are building massive data centers here, manufacturing facilities. You know, Taiwan Semiconductor, the largest producer of silicon microchips in the world, is building a $35 billion manufacturing facility. All these huge companies are spending billions here, which is just, you know, diversifying the jobs. Yardi said that Phoenix had the lowest job loss rate in the entire country throughout COVID-19. And we saw it firsthand. Our portfolio actually surged throughout COVID. We had no negative impacts. And you look at markets like Tucson, for example. I know that we talked about Tucson earlier, Jim. Tucson did not do very well during COVID. And I know a lot of sponsors down there. And it's because they don't have a diversified employment base. It's mostly, you know, the hospital and the school. It's healthcare. And then there's the University of Arizona. Vegas is a very strong value-add market the last several years did not do well during COVID. They had a lot of vacancy, a lot of delinquency. And I know that from talking to owners and from property management owners who manage deals there because they're still heavily based in hospitality and tourism. Phoenix was like, you know, almost bulletproof during COVID, just so resilient and continued to grow. So to give people some data, you know, Phoenix now is the fifth most populous city in the entire country. The only cities that have more people than Phoenix are Los Angeles, New York City, Chicago, and Houston. Phoenix is number five. It's growing faster than anywhere in the country for over five years, and it's only increasing. Okay, more people coming here, more jobs coming here. And Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix is located, is the largest geographical county in the entire country. It's bigger than any county even in Texas. Most people don't realize that. So when we say the Phoenix Metro, Jim, we're really talking about at least 15 to 20 different cities all in this one blob, right? And so when I say we have deals in Phoenix, we actually own deals in five different cities in the Phoenix metro. We have them in Phoenix, Scottsdale, Mesa, Glendale, Tempe. So if you were to drive in a straight line in Maricopa County, you're driving the west side of Maricopa County, a straight line all the way to the east, you'd be driving for at least an hour and a half straight and you would be in city the entire time with no breakup, no suburb or anything, okay? And if you didn't know the city lines, you would just think you're in Phoenix the whole time, but it's just this massive blob and unlike these other big cities in the country, like Los Angeles, New York, et cetera, the Phoenix Metro is not landlocked geographically. It continues to grow further and further out southwest and southeast, literally into the desert. 
it just keeps getting developed, more and more jobs, more housing, et cetera, more people coming here. And so it's becoming this massive metro. And to give people some idea on inventory, and then I'll kind of go into rent growth, it's assumptions and get back to that. As far as the inventory of multifamily, there's a little over 400,000 multifamily units in the Phoenix market right now, okay? We own about 1% of those. 40% of those multifamily units our 1980s product, which is our bread and butter for value add. And that's because in the 1980s, there was a Ronald Reagan tax incentive plan, which which gave tax credits to build apartments. And so these builders went crazy and just built a ton of inventory. And so this is like the mecca of 1980s value add because of the inventory. There's still a ton of properties out here that have not been renovated, that have not been turned over. I mean, relative to all the people coming here, there's a severe housing shortage. But when you look at like the ability for us to buy more deals, there's a ton out here, all right? So it's a massive metro. And I really think most people around the country don't realize how big the Phoenix metro really is, everything going for. But to give you some data points to kind of wrap this topic up, Jim, as far as like, what's the runway here? Why do we think it's not too late? So right now, the trailing 12 organic rent growth in Phoenix for April is 21.9%, which is crazy. The trailing 12 organic rent growth in Phoenix has been 20% or more every single month since last July. Okay, every single month it's maintained 20% or more trailing 12, meaning going back to you know July of 2020. And so you've got like 20% or more organic rent growth last two years, which is crazy, not sustainable, right? When we started in 2018, Phoenix was still number one in the country for organic rent growth at 8%. So it's now, you know, almost tripled that. The average organic rent growth year over year for Phoenix the last 10 years is 6.2% per year, year over year. Okay, as many of the listeners know, trailing 12 inflation in the U.S. right now is like 8.6%. Trailing 12 inflation in Phoenix is over 10%. You know, we're about 2% higher than the U.S. average. Well, you know, in our model, we're assuming as part of that stress test I mentioned, we're assuming that right after we buy the deal, there'll be this recession. Organic rent growth is going to plummet immediately from 21% the last 12 months down to an average of 5.2% on average years one through five, year over year. Okay, so we're assuming a significant decline of 5.2% on average year over year rent growth, which is you know 100 basis points or a full percentage point lower than what it's been on average last 10 years. And a few years ago, you know when inflation was 2%, we were telling investors, you know, hey, we're underwriting organic rent growth at 5%. It's barely over the rate of inflation. So this is conservative. Well, now we're literally well below the rate of inflation, which makes it even more conservative. And so, you know, what, what we're telling investors and our honest thoughts are that, you know, we are very bullish on Phoenix as one of the most insulated, consistent growth markets in the country long term, the next 10 to 20 years, because of all the in-migration patterns, the job growth, all the fundamentals it just makes ton of sense, right? You have everything in, in place and the shortage of housing, you know, but this current velocity of growth, which is unprecedented, we think there's maybe another, you know, 24 months or so before the velocity will have to slow down because you can't just keep jacking up rents several hundred dollars forever, right? Until you hit an affordability issue. But even if it slows from 20% back down to like 8%, like it was in 2018, you know, it should still be among the leaders in the country and it's still much higher than what we're projecting. And so we still very feel, feel very comfortable that we can hit these five-year conservative projections just because of, of all the fundamentals and what we're seeing in reality. So that kind of gives you some insight on what our thoughts are, you know, short-term and, and long-term. That's a great synopsis of the market. Now, you mentioned a couple of times natural appreciation. Can you explain what that is and maybe how it's different than the forced appreciation that you do from a value add and just kind of contrast those two concepts? Yep. Yeah. Great question, Jim. So yeah. So natural appreciation, you know, for the listeners basically is the natural increase in the rents each year. Okay. And some of this is driven by inflation, just like, you know, like the Fed wants to get inflation back to 2%. That's their goal. I mean, they're acknowledging that everything pretty much goes up and it costs by 2%, right? And so just historically across the country, rents will go up every year, you know, a little bit. So that natural appreciation is as you have, and it depends on the market. I mean, across the country, the last few years, everything is naturally appreciating, really. But some places are much stronger than others. But based on job growth, population growth, supply of housing, you know, basically people start to make more money. And so everything around them can justify a higher expense. That's the natural appreciation is as these rents are just organically going up because of different uh, factors. Well, then with these commercial multifamily apartments, the way they're valued, unlike single family homes, is that as the rents go up, the revenue that it's producing each month goes up. And which increases the value of it, okay? Because they're really valued by how much revenue they're producing each month, just like any business. 
And so that's that natural appreciation, just like when you own a house for 10 years and it gains value because everything around it has gone up, right? Whereas forced appreciation, like you mentioned, Jim, means that we are forcing the appreciation by executing a value add renovation plan. We're looking for, you know, these 1980s properties that have what we call classic units where they have old original interior finishes. They've got old flooring, old countertops, white appliances, old cabinets. We'll go in there, we buy the deal, and we'll go in there on the interiors, do brand new vinyl plank flooring, a real quartz countertop with an undermount sink, modern plumbing pull-down fixtures, subway tile backsplash, stainless steel appliances, brand new cabinets, et cetera. We just do a full interior renovation and it looks like a class A luxury apartment, but it's in a workforce housing type of product, which is still affordable and where the majority of the population lives. That allows us to drastically increase the rents, which is forced appreciation, which increases the value of the asset and then gets us that profit margin for the investors. And that's kind of what we were talking about earlier is that it's called a value add plan. So you have to be able to efficiently add value by executing renovations, improving the property to justify a higher rent because it's all market, right? So basically whenever we're looking at a deal, we're secret shopping all the comparable properties in that area to see what rents are they achieving for a renovated unit. So if we buy this deal, we put X amount of dollars into it, then we can increase the rent X amount which increases the value X amount and gets us that return for the investor. So it's almost like on a high level, we're flipping these apartments. It's just a lot more sophisticated operationally and and logistically. That's the forced appreciation versus the natural appreciation. Yeah, that was excellent explanation of that. Thank you very much. So the last question I usually ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen to? It can be real estate related or otherwise. Well, I think the number one podcast is Left Field Investors, you know, Jeff Pfeiffer. <laughs> but if you had to look for something else, if you've already listened to all the episodes like 10 times, you know what? So it's funny because the first couple of years I was listening to a lot of podcasts and I don't really listen to them anymore. You know, I know initially my first podcast I started listening to is Michael Blanc. So I think Michael Blanc can be good. I think he really caters more to like passive investors kind of like you, Jim. And so I think as an investor, you have to kind of understand what your your goal is. And I think there's different podcasts that cater to that. There's podcasts like yours, Jim, that cater to the passive investor. And there's people who are going to talk more about active general partner strategies. But yeah, I think, you know, Michael Blanc is a good one. I think Dan Hanford has a pretty good podcast. And it's kind of funny because there's a lot of, you know, similar speakers on a lot of these podcasts. And so I think a lot of it is comes down to the host and their format and the questions that they ask. Because, you know, that can really determine, you know, the quality of the, of the podcast too. Yeah, that makes sense. And I appreciate you listening to all of our episodes 10 times. That really helps our download counts. That's all I do. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> We're not thinking about it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. So if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, thanks, Jim. So you can go to our website. It's rise48, R-I-S-E, 48, equity.com. And then you can go on there and actually set up a call with me if you'd like to learn about, you know, what we're doing. Um, you can set up a call or you can email me. Zach, Z-A-C-H at rise48equity.com and happy to uh, jump on a call with you. Excellent. I will put that all in the show notes and thank you very much. This was a great episode to really focus on Phoenix because it's such a hot market and to have this opportunity to talk to someone that's in the market and is super successful there, that just really helps us out to understand you know, as we're looking at deals there that, okay, there probably is still some room to run and we don't have to shy away from Phoenix just because the results have been so fantastic over the past few years. So thank you very much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And we will definitely uh, keep an eye on Rise 48 as you continue to grow. Yeah, thanks so much, Jim. Really appreciate you having me on. We appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, I'm Matt Piccini, here to help you learn to produce passive income, write your own story, and direct your dollars toward positive change. My book, Backstage Guide to Real Estate, will take you through the highlights and the lowlights of my adventures in real estate, starting as a rank amateur just leaving the acting world all the way to where I am now, an owner of thousands of apartment units across the country. This book is my story in passive real estate investment. Yours will be different, reflecting your priorities, goals, and sense of purpose, but I'm hoping that our stories will share one thing, the belief that passive investment is the road to financial freedom. And that you can use that freedom to improve your own life and the life of your family and leave your community, your country, and even the world a little better than you found it. Are you ready? (laughs) Good. Then go to Pacheni.com to get more info on the book. This is really a fascinating interview for me. Just hearing Zach's story, you know, he had a high paying job, but he just wasn't happy. And so he decided to quit. And I've always told myself, and I haven't always done it, I've always told myself I wasn't 
happy in a job, I would uh, quit regardless. But you don't always have that flexibility or I don't always have that courage. And Zach did. And after he quit, he started learning about cash flow. And then that's how he kind of stumbled into real estate. And then he started studying mobile home parks because that's what he wanted to do. And through that, he found multifamily. So just by studying and thinking and trying to advance himself, he found what eventually led to his success. And then he wondered what I think we all end up wondering quite often is why isn't everyone doing this? You know, when I first learned about high cash value life insurance, I thought, why isn't everyone doing this? Then when I found out about real estate syndications, I thought, why isn't everyone doing this? And And that's the doubt we all have, right? But then you just have to have the courage of your convictions and understand that even though not everyone understands this, not everyone is doing it, that doesn't mean it's not possible and it's not a good thing to do. And, you know, Zach went off and he's had great success diving into one market. You know, he talked about diversification, but he also says, you know, he's in one market, one asset class, and he is all in. And that gives an investor a little bit of confidence thinking that, yeah, my sponsor, the the syndicator that I'm investing with, he doesn't even invest in other people's deals, other people's cities. He doesn't invest in other asset classes. He's all in in Phoenix multifamily, and that's it. So again, not a long track record, a positive track record. Hasn't been doing this for very long, but he's all in, and that gives you a little bit more confidence. And then the Phoenix market, that's another place. I, I had doubts about the Phoenix market. It's been going up 20% every month, basically, year on year is what he was saying. But you know, as he explained it, people are still moving to Phoenix. There's a lot of 1980s vintage inventory that has not had anything done to it. So there's still a lot of opportunity there. And if you're forcing appreciation, plus there's natural appreciation, you can accomplish a a business plan. And his business plans are fairly conservative compared in the market. 5% rent growth isn't conservative in some markets, but in Phoenix it is. And he's assuming a downturn starts the day they buy the property and ends the day they sell it. So his entire business plan is predicated on a market drop, a downturn. So that seems pretty conservative to me. So it was just interesting to hear his story, how he's telling it, and it all makes sense. And that's why you can't just look at the broad numbers. You can't just say, oh, Phoenix, it's gone up 20% the last couple of years, so it's got no more room to grow. Well, if you talk to someone who's in the market and that's all he does, he says otherwise. And so you know you need to figure that out for yourself, whether you agree or not. But it gives you some confidence with some of the things that Zach was saying. So I really enjoyed the interview. I really enjoyed learning about his story, his journey, and then about Phoenix. So, yeah, I'm certainly going to keep an eye on Zach and Rise 48 and see where it goes from there. So that is all we have for you today in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. <laughs>